Hey folks, and happy holidays. I'm Connor Gaughan, and this is Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking with the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are building successful businesses that also make the world a better place. The holidays are a special time of year. They gave us the opportunity to celebrate and spend time with our family and friends, but they also provided us that quiet time to step back from our daily routine and reflect on the journey we've taken over the past year. It's a chance to appreciate how far we've come and to set goals for what comes next. We can enjoy the fruits of our hard work and also absorb the lessons that our successes and our failures have taught us along the way. For us at CIC, it's been an amazing year of growth and opportunity. I feel lucky to have spent time chatting with some of the most interesting and impactful people working to make a difference in the business world today. I've learned so much about leadership from these folks. And as I've begun to think about my year's journey, it occurred to me that in the spirit of this season of reflection, it's a perfect time to look back on our year and share some of our favorite insights. All this is a long way of saying, welcome to the inaugural Consensus in Conversation Year in Review. I wanted to start off with a segment from my conversation with Catherine Ruggiero Levisi, CEO of Modern Meadow, a material science company designing biotech alternatives to petrochemicals in the textile and beauty sectors. There's a great debate about the type of background best suited for business leadership, specialization versus being a generalist. And one thing that fascinated me in conversations this year was how often folks in leadership positions had varied and wide-ranging careers on the path towards finding their current calling and how many of them talked about the importance of that broad experience as a foundation for their eventual success. Facing a wide range of challenges doesn't just make you more resilient. It also gives you a broader perspective on how to approach problems holistically. And I think Catherine managed to sum that up in a really powerful way. Initially, I was studying um, business and biology, and I very quickly realized that uh, business was something that was much more interesting to me. Uh, The connectivity, the impact. And what I could bring to the tables was definitely clearer, and I started in that in that direction. Any, you know, at the time, 18-year-old person that actually knew what they wanted to do, you just wanted to explore, and I was always very curious and trying. And I mean, any, and I look at now, you know, people tell me, you know, I'm very confused, and I'm like, who told you you should not be confused? <laughs> I think all of us went through, a, and that's the good part, right? It's about the objective is to create connectivity and value, and therefore curiosity in what drives you. And that's what I would say to anybody in early in their journey, or even late for that matter, continue to explore. Life is about that. It, there is no end game. It's about learning and, and hopefully leaving something positive behind. I think that the more experience you have in more diverse um, uh, field, not only will give you the ability to connect pieces together better, but also it, it really in the first sense of the term, it gives you creativity on how to solve problems. If you're monothematic and you have been in one company or one path, you will be excellent at it. But if life throws you a curveball, first of all, you will have challenge facing that emotionally and intellectually as well, because you've seen only one version of life. Yeah. I talk to my team and and mentees all the time about the idea that there's nothing wrong, nothing dirty about being a generalist. Being a generalist actually, to the extent you can build a career around adding new skills to your portfolio, adding new tools to your tool belt that only in the long run makes you more interesting, more marketable, more valuable. If you are a generalist, you have to realize the positive, but also the limits of it. You have to constantly learn and you have to constantly ask and you have to constantly acknowledge what you don't know, don't understand and seek knowledge. 
Because your role as a generalist is to have the mental flexibility to identify problem and put the necessary resources together. This idea, not being the one with all the answers yourself, but being the person who can put the right team together to solve the big problems, came up in many of our conversations. One person we talked with who knows a thing or two about captaining a great team was Rick Fox. Yes, that Rick Fox. Rick is the CEO of Partana, a pretty groundbreaking startup that's decarbonizing cement production. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does an NBA champion and Hollywood actor know about material sciences and carbon-negative cement? Well, Rick is the prime example of Catherine's ideal generalist leader. He's overcome a diversity of challenges across various industries. And this unique resume has helped him to develop a more holistic approach to problem-solving and talent acquisition. In short, Rick knows how to build a winning team. And in the process, he's become quite the expert on the industry. I'm curious, I mean, you you won three championships with the Lakers, and I think many would argue, probably correctly, that was one of the greatest dynasties in NBA history. Being a part of that machine, that family, that ecosystem, what have you taken from that into your business career? So the pursuit of challenging uh, goals are never easy. They're never graceful. Uh, there's a lot of stress and pressure that comes with the execution of that, especially in a group dynamic, understanding how to be of service to teammates. We pushed each other to be the best version of ourselves, and we didn't allow for ourselves to not pursue you know, the evolution of our team's excellence on a daily basis. And so when we think we can't go harder, or we think we can't, you know, something's not possible, like we never sat in that conversation more than you know, 10 seconds with each other. Great teams become great teams because the individuals on those teams are individually motivated, they're driven, and they don't accept anything but the best from each other. So they push each other out of their comfort zone. I do that here. I push us all out of our comfort zone a lot. How would you encourage folks to find that that will and that belief that we can together win as a team? What's the magic there? Well, find find the right teammates to begin with. Spend your energy with the, with people that are believers and uh, understand resilience because that it, it's really where the win is. I have no qualms about failure or falling down. My success in life has been that I get up really quickly and stay resilient in that regard. And I just know that the win is on the way. So some people talk about winning. It's another thing to, to know that you're going to win and you just do the work. So suiting up and showing up, and this is 24-7 my life. This is not a small industry that you're looking to evolve, right? And so you can imagine the challenges that we've been faced when we were initially raising funds, getting people to believe that, well, first of all, that an architect and a former professional athlete was moving into concrete. Neither one of us, you know, having studied um, material science, just having very, very scientists on the patents and, and on our team. I always say you hire the, you hire the best. Look, I wasn't Shaq and Kobe, right? But I was the captain of the Lakers. And and Sam and I always say we're stewards of this this formula. But the real gold and the real expertise is behind the scenes with our teammates that are the best in the world. Throughout the year, I was consistently struck by the amount of overlap between sports and business. Several of our guests were former college athletes, and we consistently heard themes of how being part of a team and working towards a common goal ultimately prepared them for the business world. But sports can be about so much more than just learning teamwork, discipline, and the pursuit of excellence. And one of my favorite takeaways from this year was my conversation with Roger McClendon, executive director of the Green Sports Alliance, who outlined how sports can be a vehicle for systemic positive change. Grew up around a lot of 
you know, alcoholism and drug abuse and those kind of things. And what I looked to was sports to kind of pull me out of that. And I was really inspired by watching folks like Muhammad Ali at the time, people like Roberto Clemente, those, those guys that had not just a passion for the sport and how sport really kind of could uplift you and inspire you, but they actually had social conscience. They, they understood the importance of community and understood the importance of people. And that really made an impression on me. You know, there's certain things as a kid that you remember that just warm your heart or you kind of make those impressions. And to be able to leverage those in your future is, is really important. And that's kind of what I've been able to do throughout my career. So I say sports, education, and social conscious were all those seeds that were planted really, really early. And I kind of lived through uh, what that means to struggle uh, and to see other folks struggle uh, and to figure out what we can do as a generation and as really as kind of a human rights perspective for others. I actually was in a conference and I heard this guy speaking about how sports can influence the world. He was talking about how NHL had adopted the NHL green standards, you know, around how they were going to operate and Commissioner Bettman, who's probably the longest standing commissioner in any major sport, um, was bought in. And he's, you know, he's just that personality, right? He cares, you know, it's not just about the game and about the dollars and the players. It's about what we do to give back. And so I think that, you know, kind of stuck in my mind. And so when I retired, I was working on, you know, kind of some mentorship and I mentored quite a few people throughout. And I wanted them to know that sustainability is not just about changing light bulbs and about, you know, picking up waste. You know, it really is centered around people and community at the end of the day. At the, at the larger scale, which we hear, you know, at the World Economic Forum and we hear our leaders talking, you know, one passionate in particular is like, this is about all of us around the world. You know, put your differences aside, where you grew up, what language you speak, what religion you believe in. This is about humanity. Sports can be a vehicle for systematic change, global change. Sometimes you don't have the scale or enough people bought in yet to get the infrastructure investments that you need so you can get to scale. And I think that's where sports can play a role because when it was COVID, you know, those stadiums were turning to voting centers. They were turned into food donation outlets where people can come because we were struggling, right, as a country. And so the stadium. It's connected to community. It's a part of the community. So I think stepping up to that responsibility, which we've seen demonstrated in many ways, we don't have to just do that in crisis. We could do that every day. Um, and I think that's where we got to get into a normalcy of where sustainability is not this thing on the side. It's integrated into how we live. And what fans and people can do as I look in the mirror to make myself better is to make those sacrifices, you know, as to go the extra mile for the sake of what we call playing for the next generation. That next generation um, is that the, uh, the earth is healthy and it's livable and the, the water's clean and the air is clean. Um, and, and that's all our responsibilities at the end of the day. I think part of what stayed with me about the way that Roger, Rick, and our other athletes turned business leaders thought about their time in high-level athletic competition is how they interpreted the experience as being one of service to something greater than the individual. Service was a major theme throughout our conversation this year. After all, trying to make a positive impact is at its core about trying to be of service to the world. But that idea can be so big and abstract. How do we focus it in a way that's actionable, that keeps us motivated to work hard day by day? This is something that I've asked all of our guests, and I found many of the responses to be really insightful. 
but maybe none more so than the ones I've gotten from our guests with military experience. Tim Sheehy is the founder and CEO of Bridger Aerospace. He's also a former Navy SEAL and decorated combat veteran. I asked him his thoughts on how military service mindset translates into business, and I think the answer really resonates. You know, for me, I spent most of my 20s fighting an insurgency, which was, you know, a very decentralized, malleable, innovative enemy that, frankly, didn't have any rules. They didn't have a single commander. They didn't have structure. And therefore, if you existed as an opponent to insurgency, which, as you've seen, you know, for decades and centuries on end, is a very rigid, plan-oriented, strategically-minded opponent that was unwilling to adjust your methods, your tactics, your procedures, your technology to combat your enemy, you were not going to win. As someone who spent my uh, 20s there on the ground, I credit it a lot for our business success because it made me understand and internalize that mission is what matters. Values and ethics are what matters. Making sure your team has the character and ethics that align uh, with, with your vision and that your mission is very clear and understood by everyone on the team. It truly comes down to knowing that what I'm doing is benefiting others in a very real way. And I think I think a lot of people feel that and live that. And we all have our own calling. One of the reasons that I started this show was to explore the idea that doing good and doing well as a business don't have to be mutually exclusive. Not just that, but making socially positive choices can often be the best path for a business. In many conversations, this focused on environmental sustainability. But plenty of guests this year also had really meaningful ideas on the concept of human sustainability, who they work with, who they hire, and how they make a difference for their communities. For instance, sometimes businesses see or frame hiring veterans as an act of charity. But I loved how Tim's discussion of how actually most businesses are lucky to get veterans on the team because their dedication to an organization's mission can strengthen the overall resolve of the company. We had a great talk with one of Tim's former SEAL team members, Greg Putnam, who's now running Little Belt Cattle Company a regenerative livestock operation. And he really drove home the value of having veterans on your team. I think a lot of people maybe have a misconception that veterans are are going to have to be like told what to do or that maybe they're not given credit for their creativity and flexibility and ability to adjust on the fly, especially in chaotic times, maybe where things aren't going well. And I think the value that certain veterans can bring to a team really is much more kind of a calming, the SEAL teams, I like to say, you know, calm is contagious. And I think when you interject that into business and entrepreneurship, that's your ability to find that that fits quickly and truly, you know, make those pivotal moments where you actually made that the change that you needed to at that right time. And I think a lot of veterans, you know, and, and military folks also understand that a plan is is needed and gets you started. But if you stick to that plan, even when it's not working, you're going to end up in a pretty bad spot. And the ability to change course on the fly and recognize patterns and when things aren't going your direction, I think is is something that's important. My learning style is by failing. And so it's truly the the perseverance and having an idea of what the big picture looks like and where you want to go and not being overwhelmed by the circumstances at the moment. You know, one of the lessons that I think about a lot is if you're doing it for somebody else or you're doing it for the betterment of somebody else, it certainly makes you be able to get through those those challenging times and it doesn't feel as heavy. I love the idea of learning by failing. Adversity, challenges, and failure are inevitable in entrepreneurship. 
No matter how well we prepare, no matter how hard we work, as both Tim and Greg reminded me, the best battle plans never survive after the first shot is fired. We don't always get to choose our results, but we do get to choose how we respond and how we allow the experience to shape us. One of the most inspiring conversations I had this year was with Andrew Gibbs Dabney, founder of the outdoor apparel brand Livesin. Andrew struggled with addiction and incarceration in his early 20s, but he overcame the odds to achieve sobriety, finish his education, and build a successful brand based on the awesome idea of, quote, hedonistic sustainability from the ground up. In talking to Andrew, I wanted to know, how do you make that turnaround? How does someone take their most difficult experience and use it as fuel to make positive change? So I went through a military boot camp, Arkansas Department of Corrections, ended up being in jail for about three months, general population prison for about a week or two, and then into this boot camp program. I uh, was released roughly a year later from the crime, had to rebuild my life and knew that I was going to. You know, when you're locked up, when you're, when have all your physical possessions taken away, all you're left with are your relationships and your memories and your aspirations. The things that make you, you aren't the things you own. It's what's in here. And that became very clear to me. You can't lock up someone's mind. You put them in a cage, but you can't lock up their head. And so that plus, I knew that I wanted to do something with my life. I knew that I have, like I said, that this privilege of, of, of the ability to get things done. I, I had I have ambitions. I have people that can help me. I have something I want to say in the world and a point of view that I wanted to get out there. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that doing drugs and not doing anything wasn't going to help that. So I was going to rebuild. So I enrolled in a night school management program from another university, a four-year degree, where I could work a management role, but also learn management theory. So I graduated with an organizational management degree from John Brown University while I was working in kind of operations at this apparel company. During that time, I went from warehouse fulfillment to COO of the company, kind of running all the moving parts to CEO of the company. There's about 20, 20, 25 people at any given time, multiple sales channels, outlets, apparel, supply chain, all this stuff. So I learned all of this, which was fascinating to me. I love apparel. and I love the outdoors. And it was the intersection of these two things. And fast forward a little bit. Now I've started my own company that is obviously still still in its early stages, but is you know leading to success. And a lot of it is built on those values that I developed through this process. You do need some sort of willful ignorance and unrealistic optimism to start your own company, right? Like I tell people now, it's like, if you're ready to start a company, you want to try it, make a good plan, but you can't plan forever. You feel it and you're going to go and you're going to do it because you've just got this stubborn optimism that you're going to make it work when everybody else won't. And part of this is like, to me, like that my version of overcoming that is saying, look, by the odds, I should be an addict, dead or back in prison. I can't even remove the first one. I should be dead or back in prison if I played the odds, right? And I'm, I beat those two. So why can't I beat the same better odds, still bad, of, of having a successful company? You know, that's my, that's my optimism. And so my chip on my shoulder that I wanted to address was, I want to make a good company because of the products that we make. Not like we make something so we should we should pay penance. It's like no, I want to build products that are that are differentiated that solve a that solve a problem for people last a long time and it crystallizes right there. It's like that is the person that's going to value the things I'm talking about. The person that's trying to go out there and live life for the experience of living life. And what are they wearing? Right. Like that's what I want to make. And that's all these values that I'd written down, which is like literally experiences before stuff doesn't actually mean that stuff isn't important. I, I like nice things. I like things that are well built. 
and I think I think that that is valid and it's part of my expression of myself. And so, this person who wants to live this experience filled life is wearing and buying and owning and surrounded by things that are intentional and well built and serve that life. And to me, that life is outdoors. So we're building those kind of products for people that want to spend time outside. Beyond the inspiration of his personal story, I really loved how Andrew brought real intentionality to the way he approached business, putting a lot of thought into not just the what and the how, but also the why of his products. And most especially, the who that his products were going to be for. It's not exactly groundbreaking advice to say, have a target customer in mind. But I think it's sometimes easy to lose track of what that actually means, who that person is. We try to reach as many market segments as we can. We think about age and income brackets. We optimize to be as searchable as possible. And that's all important for modern business. But it's also easy for things to become very abstract that way. For it all to become just numbers and charts and data. To run a business with purpose, it's important to remember these faces that are on the other end of the process. The people whose lives you're trying to impact with your product or service. And in thinking about that idea, I often return to the story of Ben Bressler, founder and CEO of Natural Habitat Adventures, who told us about the moment that he found his purpose. And it seems like the sale that really crystallized what the business was going to be for you through the International Fund for Animal Welfare. You've spoken at length about this, but the story is just so profound, even as a reader. So I, I can't imagine what it was like to experience it. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about that particular trip. Yeah, yeah. This guy calls and tells me he's the Director of Development at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And I said, okay. He says, do you know what a baby harp seal is? And I didn't. And he told me. And then he told me the history of the hunt that that in Northeast Canada, for hundreds of years, you know, people would go out and hunt baby seals, starting with, you know, subsistence hunting. And then in 1987, the Canadian government announced the ban of the commercial hunt of white coat seals, which is pretty tremendous. I mean, it's like, it's a, a cultural change to get that to happen in Canada. And so IFAW, instead of just celebrating, said, all right, this is great, but we now have to get revenue to the seal hunters. Because if you don't, they're just going to come back and reinstate the hunt and keep lobbying for that. So they wanted to start a seal watching tourism business to replace seal hunting and hire the hunters. And the first time I went out, this is this was the big aha moment of what I wanted to do and, and this company was I was in a helicopter with these two Canadian women who were in their late 70s, I would say, and they were sisters. And they had been donating, let's say, $50 a year to help protect baby seals. And we go and we, we lift off from the island. We start heading north. And then you start to see the white ice. And it's just as far as you can see is white sea ice. And as you're going, you're going, you're going. It's beautiful. And these two sisters are hugging each other. And they're so excited. And then you look down, you start to see little dots. And those dots are the mother seals. And there's more dots and more dots and more dots as you go further north. And as you start to descend, you see next to those dots are little white fuzzballs. And, and those are the baby seals. Once we got out and started walking around, you know, I let everybody have their space out there. And, and we had some ex-seal hunters and pilots with us to help guide. And and um, there was nothing I could really guide. I, I was mostly just a mage watching the um, seals, watching the environment, but also watching the people and how excited they were. After this whole experience, we got back in the helicopters and we lift off and we start heading back. And I look at the two sisters and I'm knee to knee to them in the back of a helicopter. And they've got tears in their eyes. They're crying so happy that they've gotten a chance 
towards the waning years of their lives to see these baby seals. That was the moment that I realized this is what I want to do. I want to take people out here, not just out here, but into these areas to see this wildlife, to see places that are so important to them. I do think travel is important for people, but moreover, for our guests, nature is important. And I think that's true for nearly all humans, that nature is important. Getting outside is important. So our mission statement is conservation through exploration. And when you go to these places, when we take people to see mountain gorillas, we're leaving money with local folks. That's vital. You know, the local folks are incentivized to protect their sustainable natural resources. And you sit with a mountain gorilla. Let me tell you, you sit with a mountain gorilla. You can't go home and go, that is not important. We don't need to protect those creatures. You go home and say, I got to help protect these animals. Same with polar bears and and when you're snorkeling with sea lions in the Galapagos or you protect that that you love and you only love what you know. And uh, our job is to let people know what these places are about. I love that way of thinking about business, seeking your purpose and building around it, keeping that purpose real and immediate for yourself as well as everyone you work with by embodying it with an actual moment, a memory and experience a face and name that sums up what matters to you and what you're looking to create. Making these connections for yourself, and in Ben's case, the customer too, helps expand and clarify the reach of the mission. But how do you take that intentionality and sense of purpose and turn it into a product that's going to have a competitive edge in the market? In our chat with Jenny Du, co-founder of Appeal, a food innovation startup, Jenny gave us an answer that was remarkable for the beauty of its simplicity. You start by asking the right questions. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN had put out a report talking about global food loss and waste rates. And it's just a staggering amount that, unfortunately, worldwide, we really haven't made a lot of progress against, which is basically that you know almost half of the food that we produce ends up going to waste before there's a chance for it to be consumed. It was, like, stunning to hear that. So it just started off with some, I would call them like naive but simple questions because we didn't, this is not a, a world we came from. It's like, why do plants spoil today? Like, what are the drivers of that? And you can have things like water evaporating out of that produce, exposure to oxygen in the environment that's causing this oxidation, maybe biological stressors. What technologies are there today? after harvest to extend or maintain the shelf life. And what we found was that it's actually not as extensive as the tools that are available pre-harvest. There's a heavy, heavy reliance on refrigeration and the cold chain, which we also know is not accessible or readily available in all markets around the world. It just seemed like there was an opportunity for some additional innovation in that post-harvest space. And we started to ask How do plants protect themselves against the environment? It's where then the vision to work with nature rather than against nature, using materials and mechanisms that are already found there, and then like repurposing them, you know, redeploying them in this way. So we take plant-based edible materials found in the plants that you already eat, in the peel, in the pulp, in the seeds. reapply those or repurpose them on the surface of fresh fruits and vegetables to help extend their quality and freshness with the intention to reduce food waste and ultimately create greater abundance for all. So you've recognized the problem that needs solving. You've set your good intentions. 
and you've come up with a plan. But how do you translate that plan into a business in which purpose and profitability are aligned? For that, I want to turn back to our talk with one of the original big thinkers in building a sustainably focused brand, Joey Zwillinger, co-founder and CEO of Allbirds. Talk to us about that kind of business analysis, that business case for other folks that are out there thinking about starting their company that have an idea, have a plan, and recognize the need for it to be a positive offering for the world. Like, How, how did you think through that business case? In hindsight, we kind of created a term for it, which I would call purpose native. And as a purpose native organization, you have the benefit of starting from scratch with the purpose in mind. And the most important element to doing that successfully is to align your purpose outcome with your financial outcome. And the best way I can describe how we've done that here is that the benefit that we're doing for the world is innovating and creating low carbon, naturally derived materials. And those materials are woven right into the actual product that we're selling. And so we have to rely on this R&D process to create something that's both lower carbon, but also unlocks better customer experiences. So our growth is entwined with our material science and engineering, and our cost structure is aligned with it. And everything goes towards the same objective, which is to make money using low carbon intensity, naturally derived materials. And that alignment of business model allows so much clarity in how you build a business and how you message to consumers. Not to say that it's always easy. There's always going to be tensions, but that's just the same as a company that, let's say, has no environmental purpose and is balancing cost and quality. So thinking about your purpose in the same way that you think about a quality or durability or cost is the right way to think about this. And you embed it right into your business model from day one, and you take a long-term view of how you create sustainable and durable growth and profit. And you do that while also achieving an objective to reduce your, in our case, carbon down to zero. That idea Joey touched on of clarity in how you message a purpose-native product to your customers gets at something else that I think is really crucial for businesses that want to contribute to a more sustainable future, seeing your end customer as a partner in the mission. How do you best design your company and products to unlock your customer's potential to carry that purpose even further? One of the most fun conversations we had this year was with Matt Rogers, founder and CEO of Mill. Matt's a super engaging guy, and it was a blast just talking shop with him. But Matt's also a real master of product design, having begun his career working for Apple, including on the original iPhone prototype. His current venture, Mill, is a new kind of trash can that's revolutionizing the way we compost. So I was real eager to get his thoughts on designing products that invite customers to make choices that contribute to positive change. You're seeking to solve a grand problem or, or be a part of a solution towards or towards a solution that, that is something systemic. But to do that, you need to build something that impacts individuals' everyday behaviors and changes their behaviors or you know, modifies and makes easier the kinds of behaviors that one might need to advance towards a systemic change. So as you're thinking about product design and product innovation, how do you build with both of those things in mind? This actually is the core of my, my personal design philosophy. That like, we can make better products that are more beautiful or easier to use. But at the same time as we do that, can we also make them better for the planet or better for humanity? You know, it's not just enough to design something and make it 
better. But like, while we're making it better, can we also like leave a trail of joy and betterment behind us and, you know, leaving the planet a better place as we do it? I think like one, one of the more important things we learned is to take the friction at, you know, you're standing, you've got like a, an item in your hand or a plate in your hand. You're like, which bin does it go in? And I think everyone has had this experience. Like they're at like a Starbucks and there's the three bins in front of you. We're like, okay, what goes in what bin? And as part of our design and thinking about the requirements for our first meal experience, this is about food. So we wanted to make it really easy. So our, our kind of philosophy is all food, any food. Like if you could eat it, milk can eat it. And you know, today, like that friction exists and like, oh, like, can I put meat in this bin? We're like, okay, no, we'll take it all. We'll figure it out. And that in itself is really important. Any areas where there's friction and like where you take a mental pause to have to think about something is an area where for like an iPod, where it ends up in the drawer, it, where it comes back to us and gets returned. So like, you know, it's got to have no friction and it's got to be brain dead easy to use. Today, the easiest thing to do at home with that dinner scrap, the thing on your plate is to either throw it down the sink or in the trash. And that split second decision you make when you're standing over the sink with your plate, that's what's going to determine the entire trajectory of that food. Either it's going to go to landfill and turn into poison gas for the atmosphere, or you can do something different. And our theory of behavior change is that we can make it easy to do the right thing. And that will create the right incentives and that will actually change the behavior. And over time, there's really no going back to how we used to throw away food. Like this is just easier and better. Therefore, you'll keep doing it. Matt's product design philosophy is simple, but profound. If you make doing the right thing the easiest thing or the best experience, then of course, people are going to do it. It seems obvious, but I think it can be easy to overlook because we've internalized an idea that there must be a trade-off. That to be sustainable, you either have to pay a green premium or get an inferior product. But it makes me hopeful for the future to see so many brilliant product designers rejecting this concept and putting in the hard work to figure out how sustainability doesn't have to mean sacrifice. We're not offloading responsibility onto customers, but enlisting them to play a key role in the mission. That idea really clicked for me in my conversation with Chris Wood, CEO of Trout Unlimited, a major nonprofit that safeguards our nation's fisheries and the surrounding ecosystems. The best result of designing products that enable good choices is to help people help themselves. And then the positive impact is amplified. But naturally, Chris had a much more eloquent way of putting it. I've likened this to the Tom Sawyer approach to conservation. When Tom got in trouble for, you know, being a infant terrible, his, his Aunt Polly made him go out and whitewash the fence. And Tom made it appear that he was having so much fun doing that, that eventually he got 11 of his friends to whitewash the fence for him. And he sat under the shade tree sipping lemonade. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going to sit under any shade trees and sip lemonade, but the more that we can make our mission to care for and recover these priority waters across America so that our children will benefit from them and engage a diverse community to do that work, instead of leveraging tens of millions of dollars, which is what we're doing today, we'll be able to leverage hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars. Over time, I've learned that Part of our job is, is not to simply go out and protect a river or to reconnect or restore a river. It's to create the capacity in the community so that we can walk away. 
the conservation that's most durable is going to be most local. You know, we can walk away knowing that that community will continue this work over time when that community can see themselves in the role that they played in protecting that monument or or removing that unneeded dam or replanting a streamside area and watching those trees grow up over time and shade the creek and remembering their kids who were there helping them to plant the trees and going back to those places with their family. That that stuff's not going to change. Nobody's going to be cutting down those trees on that streamside area, not in their lifetime and not in their kids' lifetimes. And I think that's all of our jobs as, as advocates and conservationists is to make sure that we're not only leaving behind a richer land legacy than the one we inherited, but we're, we're creating the capacity in these communities, in our own families, and in our networks of friends, and in the places we live, to encourage more and more restoration and recovery. For me, one of the most impactful examples of creating solutions that are durable because they are local was a story we heard from Tina May. Tina is the Chief of Staff and VP of Rural Services at Land Lakes and has been an instrumental part of their work supporting Wi-Fi connectivity for rural communities. Lando Lakes in particular has done some really inspiring stuff, particularly under your leadership on the sustainability team, and I want to talk about those initiatives a little bit. Let's start with one of the biggest and coolest projects, the American Connection Corps. Yeah, okay, I will say um, this was during COVID, this was 2020, the very beginning of the pandemic, like right away the first day. Our CEO said rural areas are going to get hit hit harder because they are already underserved, right? The hospitals are understaffed if they have a hospital. We knew the statistics about rural hospitals shutting down. But more so, we knew that rural America was woefully underconnected and they had big pockets where they weren't connected at all to high-speed broadband internet. So we got busy really quick thinking through what we could do about that right away. We started small. We started turning on free public Wi-Fi outside of any location that Land Lakes owned or managed. So our, our plants in rural, rural places, our warehouses in rural places. And we saw people driving up and sitting in the parking lot and doing Zoom school with their kids like on day one right? Like a mom sitting in a minivan with four kids of different ages doing homeschool outside of a a plant uh, we have in central Minnesota, right? That gives me goosebumps to think about, to think about that. What happened next was we started calling others. We just started cold calling partners, um, folks we worked with, uh, folks we, we knew, and That was done at the highest levels of our organization. And we pulled together a group that we dubbed uh, the American Connection Project. And we pulled together a coalition to advocate for a robust investment in broadband infrastructure. And that then turned into uh, the $65 billion that you see in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was signed into law last year. So we were thinking like six steps ahead, how the money would be implemented, how we would ensure this funding would go towards unconnected and underconnected communities, urban and rural. And this person on the phone said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean rural communities don't have 
a grant writer at City Hall. What do you mean rural communities uh, have a volunteer mayor? Right? Like they were like, no way. They were laughing. It was like a cartoon anvil was dumped on my head because it was, we are, we are overlooking the main problem here, right? We are, we are just like blowing right past it. We are, we are making this too complicated where we need to think through ways we can help these communities that we knew were already last on the list to receive help, how we could help them stick their proverbial hand in the air and say, hey, no, over here, don't forget about me. And I thought, oh my gosh, we need to put bodies in these communities. How are we going to do this, right? These people, there's no grant writer in Stacyville, Iowa, right? There's nobody in the county that's getting paid to write a grant, let alone build um, a stakeholder team in the county to bring everybody together to go apply for these funds. So this is where this idea of the American Connection Corps came from. The thought was, let's take... Let's take folks who are wanting to move back to their rural hometowns or are currently in their rural hometowns that have a penchant for public service. Let's give them a, a two-year fellowship. Let's teach them how to do fundamental community organizing. And let's give them the tools they need to do the grant writing, to bring people together, right? Let's give them the Rolodex they need to call folks when they get stuck and solve these problems. One of our partners in the American Connection Project, I think, said it best. And he said, a lot of folks will put duct tape on a structural problem versus going to fix the structural problem. And I think certainly in my own background growing up on the farm, if there's a problem and you live on a dead-end gravel road, right, you're not running into town to get a part to fix everything. You're going to run out to the machine shed and you're going to see what's in the drawer right, or what's in the toolbox. And you're going to figure out a way to perhaps duct tape the problem while you build the plan to fix the rest. And I think, I think that's just agriculture. I think that's just farming. Um, I think that's just our industry to make do with what you've got until you can fix the rest. But one of the things I just love so much about working for a farmer-owned cooperative is the ability to take that longer view, to say, okay, we will we'll put some duct tape on this problem for today, but tomorrow we are going to get busy with that structural structural change that's needed because we have the ability uh, sitting in sitting in these rooms with the farmers that own us to take the longer view because they are going to pass these farms to their kids and their family. And we're able to take that generational view and that longer-term mindset to fix these problems today. I want to end with a couple of thoughts that provide the answer to a question really at the center of everything we're about here at Consensus and Conversation. We talk about doing well while doing good and the capacity of businesses to help solve the challenges we face but there's an unasked why behind all of it. And that is, why is tackling these major challenges within the purview of business? When it comes to doing good for the world, why bring profit into it at all? And while I love talking about business and geeking out on the way that these companies are built and run, I do think it's super important to ask the more fundamental questions. Because, as with all of our guests, I do think that businesses have a massive role in solving the problems of the day. And as to why that's the case, I'll let you hear it from the ones who are on the ground doing the good work. First, Michael Chanin, CEO of Cherry Street Energy. Let's stick on this do good, do well theme. 
y'all have the trademark for it in the energy industry, which I love. So what does that mean to you as a, as a company or, and, and personally? That we need to answer both when we're thinking about taking action. Just doing good sometimes is necessary, but not sufficient. It is important to recognize that a thriving community is a community that has a vibrant economy, that has a marketplace of opportunity for people to participate in, and that it is okay to say it. I mean, one of the lessons I think that was helpful for me working in finance, as much as it was pilloried, and rightly, for a lot of different reasons, was that there was some honesty oftentimes that was involved in that. I mean, people were focused on one thing, and that was a return. But in doing so, it allowed for more clear communication. And so in all of the things that we did at Cherry Street, we could say, hey, are we doing good and doing well? But, you know, we get approached a lot to say, can you donate this system to this totally valid and worthwhile cause? And we do. I mean, we give donations in different ways. But generally, as a business model, it's not sustainable. And oftentimes, we go back to those places and say, well, We'd love to work with you, and we think it's important to support and do this thing, but you pay your electricity bill today. So for us to try to build a business with you just taking away your electricity bill, that doesn't seem like the necessary thing. So we needed to do good and do well, and also because we're very incentive-focused as a firm, how we try to drive corporate outcomes. And in doing so, a lot of those incentives are financial incentives. Everybody is an owner in our business, and we believe that we're building pretty meaningful capital for our shareholders and ourselves as we build this value. And then we hope that all of our people who are mission-focused and want to effectuate change and make it a better world can contribute to their communities through doing good. I think it's okay to hold ourselves to a higher standard and say we want to make it a better place. We want people to act with kindness and compassion, and that we still probably can do so and do quite well. In closing, I wanted to come back to a set of thoughts from Paul Snyder, VP of Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association, that really powerfully captured the spirit of all we're about. The fact is, I'm one of those people that believes that capitalism is all about harnessing human potential to the good or to its ill, and that so much about what has advanced our world and its people over the last 500 years uh, or so, capitalism was right at the heart of it, whether it's the heart of new drugs that are getting developed that actually help you know, alleviate pain and suffering or new industries that get developed that give people a chance to gain employment and opportunity to lift themselves out of from one situation to another. Capitalism, when deployed rightly, has been the greatest singular force for good um, that, that I can point to. So I'm motivated by the fact that there's this incredibly potent engine of human impact. And I'm motivated by the part that I hopefully can play in working with a team to actually have it deliver positively to humanity. And I finally, I would say, and it does, and we can. So when we sit here and we look at what's going on in the climate or we go on with what's going on in society and all the challenges we have, the fact is, is that Time and time and time and time and time again, there have been things in front of us as a species that we've gone, oh, how can we possibly take that on? How can we possibly deliver on that? And yet we have. What we the advances we've made in education. We went to the moon. You know, we the Cubs won the series. The fact is anything that's impossible, you know, the fact is we found a way when we finally got it motivated to actually do something about it. For me, the fight when it comes to climate, I believe that we are going to solve the climate crisis. I believe we are not going to go extinct. 
Um, and that's what kind of really motivates me when I think about all the stuff that we're trying to do with regard to uh, our footprint here at Tillamook, the collective dairy footprint, agriculture, and then all of industry and society. Well, that's it for Consensus in Conversation 2023. I hope you all enjoyed revisiting these conversations as much as I did, and that you found some inspiration to take into the new year. I'm off to do my own resolutions for 2024, and I plan to incorporate many of these insights into my own thinking for the coming year. I want to thank everyone so much for listening, bringing you these stories is an honor and a privilege. It's also just a ton of fun. To hear more insights from the good folks featured here, we've put episode links in the show notes. And as a little Christmas gift to us, please consider taking a moment to follow, rate, and review the show. It really helps expand our reach. If you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. From all of us at Consensus, a very happy holidays to you and yours. And I hope you'll join us again for brand new conversations in January. Let's keep making a better world together in 2024. Consensus in Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock with editing from the team at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including Kate Tucker, creative director, Greg Hurrigal on research, and Patrick Gallagher on strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.